Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. For me, one of the most memorable quotes from Tara Westover's book, Educated, is where she says, Never again would I allow myself to be made a foot soldier in a conflict I did not understand. In our previous episode, I described exactly this phenomenon in my own life. When I voted against marriage equality in California in 2008, I allowed myself to be made a foot soldier in a cause I did not understand. Since that time, I have changed my thinking and I've tried to atone for what I see as a grievous moral error. But until now, I had never taken the time to really become educated on the topic of LGBTQ history. So this has been an incredibly meaningful journey for me. When I thought of Obergefell versus Hodges as a critical text for breaking down patriarchy, I knew exactly who I hoped would be my reading partner. He's a dear friend with whom I've talked about this issue in the past, and he's probably the smartest person I know. It's Matthew oh, Nelson. I've been a lot of people. <laughs> Not true. Um, I'm so happy to welcome you back today for episode two on our four episode series on this topic. So Matthew, thank you for coming back to the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me back to your podcast. This is four episodes, a marathon journey, and I'm, I'm happy to be on it with you for sure. Thanks so much. That last episode was pretty emotional, I think, for both of us and honestly, a really special and sacred experience for me. So but as we start this this uh, second episode, we're going to dive into the text, which is more traditional for what we've done in the past on the podcast. Um, and one question that I didn't ask, usually I ask this question to all my reading partners, so I'll ask you now, is that uh, is a question of just what breaking down patriarchy means to you or what patriarchy has meant in your life, however you want to answer that. Sure. Well, from my father to Catholic and evangelical religious leadership, as I've recounted it in the last episode, I have encountered toxic masculinity. I alluded to it briefly, but I think it is also important to know that my own mother faced significant physical abuse, Mm -hmm. psychological and spiritual abuse by her father. And so listening to those stories growing up, has made me somewhat sensitive to the topic of patriarchy. I also want to be clear that I have encountered beautiful masculinity that need not be patriarchal and hegemonic, that there have been so many men in my life who have been able to demonstrate male leadership without subordinating women. So for instance, Mm -hmm. the now deceased brother Edward at the Catholic school at which I taught, the Woodside Priory School that I mentioned in the last episode, he modeled sensitive, queer-affirming leadership even as a member of the Benedictine monastic community. So throughout my life, I have stood up and stared down the most egregious performances of patriarchy, trying to break it down, trying to deconstruct it, to understand what it is, and to put it in its place. I've come to conclude that I just don't think that cishet, and this is a term I'm going to use over and over and over in our podcast, cishet, cisgender, that is someone who is embodied 
in sex and gender, these are completely aligned. This is a cisgender person as opposed to a transgender person. So cisgender heterosexual men, I don't think that they're encouraged to critically evaluate how dominant culture has conferred upon them a power that can wittingly or unwittingly cause great harm in the world. So cishet men are generally blithely unaware of the real abuse and oppression they dole out to women and queers. That's a great introduction. And I would say that's one of my goals. Actually, just the other day, someone said, what's like your overall goal with the podcast? And I said, honestly, one of them, I have several goals, but one of them is to help men understand that power dynamic, because a lot of times, as you said, it can be wittingly or unwittingly. And and I feel really lucky and blessed that so many of the men in my life have been really wonderful people. And so it's not on purpose, but it's just structural that privileges mm-hmm. men, but they, they don't mean to. And helping men understand this and helping men understand the way that it hurts them too has been one of my goals. So awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one thing that dawned on me is some research that has been put out about boys who are perceived to be gay. They may be effeminate or mm. they may not, but they are perceived by their peers to be gay. And among the subset of boys perceived to be gay, they are even more likely to ideate or attempt suicide than even LGBTQ teens themselves. So when you say that patriarchy can harm even cisgender heterosexual boys and men um, as much, sometimes if not more, than uh, women or queer people in some cases, that is true. It bears out in some of the data. Wow. I did not know that. Thanks for that, Matthew. I wanted to ask also, I guess before we jump into the actual Supreme Court case, there's a lot of kind of setting the stage that needs to take place, even for me still to get a historical context and a, and a sense of the lay of the land. So could you start us out by talking about some of the underlying social systems that make up the world around us. I feel like sometimes we're so accustomed to the matrix of beliefs and customs and and power dynamics that surround us. We're born into them. We don't have any, you know, anything to compare it with because this is just all we know. And so sometimes we don't even see that matrix and we don't recognize that it doesn't have to be this way. Human society could have evolved in a totally different direction. And so could you give us some background information about those that matrix and those systems to set up our discussion on Obergefell v. Hodges? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And just to your point, Bobby Harrow, a critical theorist, has written a lot about the social construction of identity the ways in which society has acculturated us to ways of being in the world. And we just receive those things as given. They are Mm -hmm. taken for granted. I like to use the analogy in my class about the fish in the fishbowl. The fish doesn't know it's swimming around the water. It lives in the water. It needs the water. It's only ever known the water. And so it takes a kind of consciousness raising, a critical consciousness to understand that you are swimming in the water. So as I'm sure your devoted, learned listeners of this podcast will surmise <laughs> by now, the Venn diagram of patriarchal oppression that falls on women 
and on the LGBTQ community has, you know, much overlap. Of course, patriarchy doesn't exclusively refer to ancient civilizations, political distribution of power. Uh, The 20th century feminists taught us that patriarchy actually is now. Patriarchy is also a modern social system that subordinates, discriminates, or is oppressive to women. Okay. And this is, I think, a settled idea uh, this far into your podcast. So Mm -hmm. to state it differently, it is the priority of men to dominate with distributive power to other men in a conscious or unconscious attempt to marginalize women. This socio-political organization is socially constructed, not dictated to us, say, by nature. It's not genetic. It's not of the gods, although sometimes men maintain these things. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in the systems and structures of society that we have co-created together and we co-create in every successive generation. We further these things along. These constructs then have been with us for so long that there is just this givenness to them, a self-evident quality, a facticity that makes it difficult to critically examine, deconstruct, and, you know, create a new kind of world. So what has this got to do with the LGBTQ community? Patriarchy creates the necessary conditions not only for sexism to flourish, but also for homo trans queer phobia to flourish. Why? Well, because patriarchy can only exist if there is a universal acceptance of this myth of heteronormativity, or what gender theorist Judith Butler calls the heterosexual matrix, which I think you discussed in a previous episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, we did. Yeah. So it's this acceptance of the myth of heteronormativity and gender binarism, a binary that there is heterosexual people, um, that's the norm, and then there may be these deviants on the other end of the spectrum, and then with regard to gender, there's male and there's female, and that's it. There's no spectrum thinking, there's no continuum, it's just one or the other. If we were thinking about it in terms of logical fallacies, it would be a false dichotomy. So heteronormativity is a world in which heterosexuality is the only normative sexuality. And any deviation from this is marked as perverse and broken. Hmm. And gender binaryism suggests that there are only two genders, male and female, even though we have many examples in nature of hybridity, or dysphoria and multiplicity, like, for instance, with the prevalence of intersex persons in society. I think it is one in every 2,000 people are born intersex, or what we used to call hermaphroditic. Hmm. And if people were just born Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, then why do we see such prevalence of anomalies to Hmm. Adam and Eve, male and female? Um, so the, the ideology of binaryism is the prerogative of patriarchy, the strong to rule over the weak, the power and privilege derived from heteronormativity really fuels patriarchy. Thus patriarchy must advance certain logics to protect its preeminence. Hence 
sexism, homo, trans, queer, phobia. Everyone's got to have this contagion so that we can protect the patriarchy. Hmm. So accordingly, sexism then is the priority of men, especially in the social, economic, and sexual dominance of women in patriarchal culture and society. Again, this is what we're calling heterosexism. Queer gender and sexuality as the ultimate subversion of heteronormativity calls into question patriarchy's power and privilege. Just thinking of it a different way, by our very existence, the fact that we are walking and talking, that we are even on a podcast called Breaking Down Patriarchy, we (laughs) problematize and discredit the ideologies of heteronormativity and binarism that justifies patriarchy. See, the way that I think of it is, is the emperor has no clothes. We exist, therefore, Mm. patriarchy must be suspect. We are not pyrite. We are not fool's gold. We are 24 karat humanity. And we are going to live out our truth, even if it destabilizes the orthodoxy of men for the maintenance of patriarchy. So predictably, right? Sichet men will not like this. Thus, the patriarchy deploys homo trans queerphobia to safeguard this power and privilege. And really... From the earliest stages of life, boys learn how to police these rigid boundaries of heteronormativity and gender binaryism so that they too will embody the patriarchy as they grow up. They'll inherit this for themselves. So, for example, boys enforce cisgender exclusivity and heteronormativity with comments like, that's so gay, Mm. you know, like the quad or or the locker rooms. You know, even on my campus, Menlo School, as enlightened as the academic community is, Mm. my students report to me that they hear such things as they say on the daily, as, you know, the kids say these days, you know, about, about that's so gay or that person's, you know, and and they use the F word or something like that. Mm. You know, I'm not privy to this. Students would never say this with an earshot of myself, but, but this, this is still occurring regularly. Um... And, and even after the Me Too movement, men calling women whores or lesbians for exercising sexual agency and being feminist is really still an all too common occurrence if, you know, my straight friends are to be believed. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, let's get a little bit more historically sophisticated with our analysis. Heteronormativity's technologies of control are really encapsulated in the notion that queer desire identity and performance are sick and sinful. What I heard from the pulpit of Mr. Abendroth in the previous episode, Foucault, Mm -hmm. Michel Foucault, one of the first queer theorists, he addresses Mm -hmm. this at length in his trilogy, The History of Sexuality. Originally, the biomedical discourse maintained homosexuality to be abnormal and unhealthy, like someone having a mental illness, mm-hmm. until the APA depathologized homosexuality in their diagnostic manual in 1973. Hmm. Today, the technology of oppression is only wielded by fringe conservative groups and religious organizations who engage in abusive reparative therapy. Such reparative therapy has been outlawed in California, but you'd be surprised, Amy, that there are still 
so many states which permit reparative therapy. I'm sadly not surprised, actually. It Having family and friends in in other parts of the country, it's just, it's like a different world, right? It's, mm. it's so, it's, it's really devastating to know, but yes, go on, Matthew. Sorry yeah, well, to interrupt. So, actually on that point, uh, Casey Pick, who I mentioned in the previous episode, mm-hmm. she works in the legislative agenda wing of the Trevor Project mm. and her central work is lobbying states to ban reparative therapy mm because of how psychologically, spiritually destructive it has been to teens and young adults or even older adults. And so many of the leaders of these organizations that um, engage in, quote, reparative therapy, this Mm -hmm. sort of pseudo-psychological, pseudo-scientific enterprise, they've recanted their strategies, their techniques as being fraudulent. And even some of them themselves have come out as gay. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of hypocrisy going on here. Um, So in the religious domain, we see real pervasive and persistent uses of the technologies of control that we're talking about here. The religious discourse, again, as I mentioned in the previous episode, especially in Christian biblicist traditions, they tend to brand queer life as as sinful and immoral. Even though such theological condemnations of LGBTQ people predominate in evangelical Christianity, like in the embattled Southern Baptist Convention right now, and with the Roman Catholic hierarchy in the United States, millennial and Gen Z Christians are increasingly just, just really rejecting their legitimacy. So when it comes to the psychological evaluation of LGBTQ people and the spiritual evaluation of LGBTQ people, uh, the ways in which these discourses are used to marginalize or oppress LGBTQ people is really coming under the microscope now and deemed uh, real suspect. So Mm. the scholarly literature really uh, on both the psychological front and the spiritual front um, has compellingly neutralized these ethically specious claims. I mean, I can really speak more to the religious domain than the psychological domain, but it is true. There's been a lot of literature now coming out saying that this technology to maintain heteronormativity that is branding LGBTQ people outside of the faithful, outside of the committed adherence to a religious tradition, that that's just balderdash. (laughs) So you're saying that there's literature, like books and stuff that are being published that really kind of neutralize that harm that had until, you know, now been done by the Bible. I mean, those biblical verses that are, have been used to, define homosexuality as sinful. I'm not aware oh, of yeah. any of any such <laughs> texts or books that would be helpful. And I, I know LGBTQ people in my own religious tradition and their families who are just really in absolute anguish because they're raised to believe that those scriptural passages are just God's word full stop, right? And so they, I don't know of any other way of interpreting those passages that would be seen as legitimate within a religious context. Do you know what I mean? So most of the gay 
people that I know within my religious tradition, they they really have a hard time staying in a faith tradition because it just is so rejecting. Anyway, I would love for you to share some of those books that you have found helpful or the, or the new literature that's coming out now. Oh, yeah. You know, I can suggest a few, but there has been a veritable avalanche of texts oh, wow. that have come out critically evaluating scriptural texts, critically evaluating Christian ethics, the Christian community uh, trying to resignify what the quote Christian community really can be to be more accepting and inclusive of LGBTQ people. Uh, most recently, uh, actually recently to me, but evangelical ethicist David Gushy wrote a profound work of personal transformation concerning LGBTQ people in the church. His book is called Changing Our Mind. So that would be mm -hmm. one text that I would recommend to our listening audience today because it's really comprehensive. It addresses all of the things from Christian politics, Christian theology, the actual biblical texts themselves. And it, it shows you how a person can change their mind, especially mm -hmm. in an age in which it seems that because we are so tribalistic, we're so polarized that it couldn't possibly be people can change their minds today. But what I love mm -hmm. about David Gushy's work, Changing Our Mind, is it models quite well how people can be of one mind about something and, and the journey that they go on, similar to the journey that you recounted in the last episode, your own journey, Amy, that people can change their minds. And being an evangelical Christian professor there's just a lot of credibility that he brings to this conversation in that book. If you're looking for a more scholarly treatment, I like Dale Martin's Sex and the Single Savior. That is going to be a real eye-opener <laughs> in the ways that he interprets passages of the gospel and Paul's letters, Paul's epistles, but also Jennifer Wright Kuntz's Unprotected Texts. The Bible's surprising contradictions about sex and desire. I know. Clever title, right? <laughs> That's such a good title. That's funny. <laughs> I love it. You know, as as you were listing those books too, I'm so grateful you did. And I I just wanna mention too, I haven't read this book yet, full disclosure, but I'm seeing it everywhere that um, Blair Osler has written a book called Queer Mormon Theology. Mm. Um, and so and that's it, in my understanding, it's really kind of groundbreaking, paving the way into queer Mormon study. So I'm excited to read that book too. So I'll just throw that out there as a recommendation for any Mormon listeners. But the ones that you suggested, I think would it seems would be really applicable and helpful for under a broad, broad Christian and maybe even just a broad religious umbrella, right? I mean, even mm -hmm. possibly Jewish or Muslim or anyone who's struggling with the, that tension, as you described it on our last episode between realizing, you know, uh, an LGBTQ identity and your desire for discipleship or, or, you know, a past in which discipleship was, was a goal and a desire of the heart. So anyway, super helpful. Thanks, Matthew, for those recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I have a, a question for you that I want to go back to because you brought up a like a Venn diagram. So I have that in my mind. You mentioned that early about um, the overlap between sexism and homophobia. And I remember a conversation that you and I had 
when we were in the International Women's Health and Human Rights class, and you explained it so well in a way that I really had an epiphany. So could you talk more about that, that Venn diagram of sexism and homophobia? Sure, absolutely. So sexism, particularly misogyny, the real hatred of the feminine, mm -hmm. hatred of women. Mm -hmm. Sexism and homotransqueerphobia are really two sides to the same coin. Misogyny, this is the hatred of women, but not just that, and their power. Mm. And homotransqueerphobia being basically the same, hatred or fear of anyone perceived to be like a woman mm -hmm. or transcending those binaries and their power. Because again, men are very happy being <laughs> atop the socioeconomic hierarchy. Why would they want anyone to undermine that in any way? So in the eyes of cishet men, and again, this, not, this need not be a man's posture, but this is the default setting that men are born into. So it takes a really enlightened man to critically evaluate what's going on and then decide something different for himself. You know, mm -hmm. because in the eyes of cishet men, why would any man willfully trade their power away in a patriarchal world in being like a woman, trading their power and privilege as men for the subordinated status of women? So whether in the performance of gender, how a man holds himself in the world, or particular sex acts that occur in the privacy of one's own home, men fear and denigrate the feminine, the subversion of patriarchy. And I guess slightly less mystifying for cishet men, how dare a woman be masculine and act like a man to try to usurp his privileged place in this socioeconomic hierarchy of American culture. So lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender persons are really living symbols of the absurdity of patriarchy. Here we are, we don't fit on polar ends of this spectrum that we're forced to inhabit, and we are fluid, we are moving, we are changing, and the power relations that map so easily on to male and female in American society, we, just by breathing, just by speaking, just by walking and being in the world, we are upending those power relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just makes it click. Thanks for explaining that again. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of being redundant, quite literally, LGBTQ people are outlaws to the patriarchal world. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about it, once quite literally in the U.S. before the Supreme Court case, Lawrence v. Texas, with uh, the sodomy laws where mm -hmm. men could not engage in acts of intimacy with other men without that being criminalized. So mm -hmm. there were laws in the books that prevented same-sex intimacy. We'll talk about that shortly. But with LGBTQ people, the sexual and gender binary and hierarchy are really just dashed against the rocks. Mm. If, if categories of gender and sexuality are fluid and socially constructed, which this is the assumption of our conversation today, then patriarchy will properly be seen as an unstable condition. Heterosexism, sexism, and queerphobia exist to animate opposition against us 
as we question society's scripts concerning what really constitutes the good life, how families should be structured, society should be ordered, and, you know, even resources allocated. Queerness prompts us to reevaluate political economy, ethics, law. I mean, hmm. even educational healthcare, housing, carceral, and other policies that have long hmm. emerged out of patriarchy, all these things need to be questioned because they're all predicated on patriarchy. So, hmm. you know, like sexism, if you dismantle homotrans queerphobia, then the power and privileges of patriarchy really seem dubious, unjust. I mean, even downright silly when you think about it. So at the risk of you know putting too fine a point on this, patriarchy is a fraud. And even <laughs> cishet men themselves will work for a more egalitarian society with this realization. They too don't mm. want to be party to this fraudulent system. Mm. I love that image of kind of enlisting everyone as a human family. To That's been one of the themes I hope that has come across to this whole podcast is, is really recruiting everyone to, again, examine this matrix and create a, a world that's more just and better for every for everyone, right? So what would you say, I mean, if you could like encapsulate this for cishet women and LGBTQ people listening today, what would be like the takeaway from, from this concept for you? Okay. So if our listeners take away anything from this first half of our conversation, it really would be this. If feminists care about eradicating patriarchy, and of course they do, they must think intersectionally and approach the dismantling of heteronormativity as ardently, as passionately as they would the dismantling of gender inequality. Hmm. And the, the other side of this, to the queers that are listening, for our part, queers must all be feminists. Hmm. That is how you are going to become self-actualized. This is how you are going to be liberated. So it's a two-way street. Hmm. Wow. I've said over and over as we've been preparing these episodes that this is new territory for me. Um, I've never heard it articulated so so clearly. I We've talked on this, this podcast on um, episodes prior a lot about the tragic history of white feminism, about the intersection of patriarchy and white supremacy and the history of white feminism is so important to study, you know, the white privileged women who in the past have wanted to free themselves from patriarchal restrictions, but then who remain ignorant, sometimes, you know, accidentally and really naively, but innocently, but sometimes really willfully ignorant of the, the unique challenges of our sisters of color within a culture that privileges men and privileges white skin. Um, so we've talked about those interlocking Hmm. oppressive systems of of patriarchy and racism. And we've talked about queer sisters on in other episodes, but I'm real and that's been so, so important. And so we've kind of been building, but i'm I'm really struck by the way you said that if we care about dismantling patriarchy, we need to dismantle heteronormativity as well because 
the way I'm hearing it, the way it's striking me is that this structure that imprisons straight women on the basis of their sex is the same structure that imprisons our queer siblings because of their sexuality as well. It's the same system. And so it reminds me of that quote by Fannie Lou Hamer, um, nobody's free until everybody's free. We're all in this together, right? Yeah. And I mean, just think about this in terms of patriarchal politics, that so-called, you know, culture war that we hear so much about, that they're fought along the axes of reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights, that Mm. this lobby, this patriarchal lobby is funneling their energy to combat both of those things as aggressively as possible, both of them. Is that a coincidence? Of course it's not, because sexism and heteronormativity are just two sides to the same coin. Hmm. So that's why, in a positive direction, women and LGBTQ people see common allies in each other to Hmm. fight oppression. Hmm. Okay. Oh, that's so clear. Thank you, Matthew. So now let's turn to the text itself, to the Obergefell decision that we're discussing today, and then just kind of help us in terms of like the legal history and the cultural history. How did we arrive at the Supreme Court decision that we're discussing today? Or put differently, how did queer politics come to embrace marriage equality as a priority? And then I'm also curious about Like, how can we account for society's rapid shift to accept marriage equality? That's also one thing that you and I have been talking about offline before recording, but maybe that was a lot to talk about, but take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, let me try this. May I invite the listening audience to my classroom, A246. Come on in, choose your own desk. And let's go back to the beginning of the formation of the national gay and lesbian community. Okay. <laughs> so, but, you know, stated simply, what would one day become the LGBTQ community was fiercely divided on how we should be in a heteronormative world and how we would advocate for our own dignity, our mm-hmm. recognition and rights. Perhaps it is helpful to think of two factions angling for influence among non-normative gender and sexual pariahs of American culture. We, We might think of them as two camps, the assimilationists and the liberationists. And this will be helpful Mm -hmm. for next episode as well. So Mm -hmm. let's really try to get this in our heads that the queer community is not of one mind about how to proceed you have the assimilationists and the liberationists. In the post-war era, the homophiles, these people would be considered the assimilationists. One prominent group was called the Matachine Society. They were the homophiles. They really it, had the Explain the Matthew. Sorry, sorry. I'm just yeah, yeah. going to pause and just, I mean, maybe it's obvious to listeners, but just in case, just um, explain that word homophile, like what that would be referring to. Sure. Well, it's a group of of gay men, right? These were largely white, middle-class, educated, privileged men who believed that we should prove ourselves worthy of acceptance for the, you know, cisgender, heterosexual dominant culture. 
they love to glorify the norms and values of antiquity. Oh yeah, like particularly of the Greco-Roman world where homoeroticism flourished. Now, somewhat problematic when you think about it uh, too uh, intently, but you know they they really thought that gay men could just naturally parlay their identities, their values into straight culture. So that mm-hmm. was their agenda. They, they hope to prove themselves normal enough to blend in to American society. So that was the Mattachine society. That was the assimilationists. But, but you had liberationists on the other end. These were, these were urbanites. These were bohemians. You had artists. You had thinkers, public intellectuals. They, they could be well-educated. They could be progressive white people, but they could also be poorer people of color who basically had little to lose from a more radical posture. Of course, if you have money, if you have some privileged status in society, then you're doing what you can to protect that. But if you have nothing to lose, then you're you're just going to kind of be a little bit more impatient and Mm. demand more. So, Mm. you know, the the birth of queer liberation. And and if we think about it before Stonewall in Los Angeles, there was the Cooper donuts riot or in San Francisco, there was the Compton's cafeteria riot. These, you know, these, these riots were pitched by transvestites, what they called them then, what we would understand as transgender people now, but to use the language of history, they were the transvestites who were pushing back against police brutality. And they said, we reject your assimilationist strategy. And they were right to do so because the assimilationist strategy was failing. It was very little traction made by the Mattachine Society, if only to reassure gay people that they were not scum of the earth, but Mm. they weren't really making any inroads into heteronormative culture. Then, this is where it all changes, this is the shift, the history-defining Stonewall and riots of 1969 This was a violent uprising that occurred in Greenwich Village of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Now, undercover police raided gay bars all the time in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And there was a point at which the gay people got fed up. So, and when I say gay people, I'm using this colloquial language at the time. Gay referred to lesbians, bisexuals, and transvestites as well. Sure. Undercover police raided these gay bars. They would often harass the patrons, blackmail the patrons, um, and they would charge them with crimes. But in 1969, at the Stonewall Inn, the patrons had had enough. The Stonewallers, as they were called, fought back, and they did so for three days. And this is not surprising to me if you consider the fervor of of civil rights movement going on at this time, you had Latinx and African-American queers and even straight allies joining in the fight. So everybody is in on this fight against the police and they go parading about the village saying, we're fed up, we're not going to put up with this anymore, we're going to fight back. So LGBTQ, LGBTQ people really remember Stonewall as women remember Seneca Falls and African-Americans remember Selma. Mm -hmm. That being said, this really was an intersectional struggle. We remember it now as 
that decisive, that pivotal moment of queer liberation, but there was a kind of intersectional nature to it. So let's quicken our pace just a little bit here. Um, The 1970s ushered in queer fever dreams of Hmm. political organizing, free, unbridled love, lots of sex happening in bathhouses. This is complete liberation. This is the pent-up liberation that queers had been longing for. And it didn't necessarily mean free love. Some people were coupled in monogamous relationships, raising families. But for so many people, they had been restrained, told they're sick and sinful. And now was the time to partay. (laughs) Except the universe had a sense of sad irony to it because then in 1981 reports of a quote gay cancer were circulating the hiv aids crisis of the long 1980s from 1981 to 1996 would bring that party to an abrupt end so you you think of this ascendancy of the liberationists even with act up in the 1980s, fighting back against the patriarchy of the Reagan administration and the Roman Catholic Church during the 1980s, uh, fighting, fight back, fight AIDS, the assimilationists would see an opportunity to assert their agenda in the midst of this chaos, this death, this despair. So lamentably, I would say, Rather than transforming the world into a queer planet, to quote Michael Warner, our first queer theorist in the next episode, gays and lesbians moved toward the goal of inclusion into basically two of society's most conservative institutions, the military and marriage. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at a Supreme Court decision today. So it is incumbent upon us as good students of the law that we back up a little bit here before we approach a text and look at this legal story that mm. precedes Obergefell. So let's, let's go back to 1986. By 1986, we just have President Reagan for the very first time admitting that AIDS exists. Mm-hmm. The gay community has lost tens of thousands of people. And Bowers versus Hardwick, which is a Supreme Court decision that upheld Georgia's anti-sodomy law, um, while the right to privacy failed to be extended here to consensual sexual intimacy between same-sex persons, this is what Bowers versus Hardwick decided, it thrust discrimination against sexual minorities into the spotlight. What's very important to think about is that gay men are considered vile, repulsive. They're considered sexual predators. But when HIV AIDS hits the community and the community rallies itself to care for each other, to love each other, to find a solution, to find a cure for HIV AIDS, to stand up against a recalcitrant bureaucracy in the American government who would do nothing. When their stories are told in the media, people gain some sympathy for the LGBTQ community. Likewise, with Bowers versus Hardwick, when the Supreme Court says, no, you cannot express any consensual sexual intimacy 
between two people of the same sex in your bedroom. It has this ironic uh, twist of bringing LGBTQ people into the spotlight as well, mm. to be a little bit mm. more sympathetic to who they are, to their plight, to the discrimination that is that that, that are facing them. So if we can skip ahead then 10 years later, there is a Colorado proposition that states that if any city or jurisdiction passes a law that protects LGBTQ people against discrimination, we will reject it out of hand. That was the proposition in Colorado. Romer v. Evans, which was decided by the Supreme Court, again, authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who would string together these gay rights decisions, struck down that Colorado proposition that banned these cities from passing anti-discrimination laws and protecting gay and bisexual people. He wrote that the law was unprecedented, quote unquote, in the way that it eliminated a whole group of people's right to seek specific protection from the law. Hmm. So it established the precedent that, LGBTQ people cannot be singled out as a class of people to be discriminated against. I mean, if you can imagine, you need to have a Supreme Court decision that says that you should not go out of your way to hurt people. Hmm. Unbelievable. But that, Amy, is what Romer v. Evans decided. Yeah, that's where we were. Wow. Yeah. Now, getting back to marriage here, um, we're going to talk about in the next episode a little bit more about how marriage becomes this defining issue. But suffice to say, by the mid-90s, the Republicans force Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is very reluctant to do so, but he does so anyway. He signs the Defense of Marriage Act, Mm -hmm. um, which was the federal government and states saying together that they're going to remember, they're going to recognize marriage as a union between a man and a woman only. This upheld the state's right to marriage discrimination. And everything that proceeds from the Defense of Marriage Act is an attempt to try to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act. And we'll look at the particular clauses, particularly Clause 2 and Clause 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, which is targeted in a piecemeal fashion. Simultaneous to this, LGBTQ people are trying to fight the military. They want to serve openly in the military. And in 1998, Bill Clinton signs a compromise to that. The don't ask, don't tell policy, you know, which says you keep your sexuality yourself. You're good. Uh, Except, of course, that invites all sorts of blackmailing to go on. And Mm. these uh, honorable members of the military are given dishonorable discharges when found out. Their careers are ruined. Their lives are ruined. So the military's don't ask, don't tell policy was hardly a compromise that worked for gay and lesbian people. Mm. Now, things would change in 2003 with Lawrence v. Texas, which was a Supreme Court case that essentially reverses Bowers and extends Romer. Again, Justice Kennedy is writing. And In the majority opinion, he states that homosexual persons had the right to privacy in their own homes. All sodomy laws throughout the nation were rendered unconstitutional. Decriminalizing sodomy meant LGBTQ people need not fear celebrating same-sex love in their own homes. And Justice Antonin Scalia, writing for the minority, said, in deciding Lawrence v. Texas that 
the floods would be released from the dam and gay rights would flow through the land. Hmm. And Antonin Scalia was right. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you know, this immediately emboldened states to take up LGBTQ rights causes, mm-hmm. particularly um in Massachusetts with the Goodrich versus the Department of Health decision, which sanctioned marriages for the Bay State. Mm-hmm. And I have to say on a person on a personal level, Amy, this was great because I was just starting my graduate program mm-hmm. and I was there at the Cambridge Courthouse early oh in the morning gosh. on May 17th. I will never forget this day in 2004 when the ceremonies began and the happy couples started to proceed out the doors of City Hall. Oh my gosh, Matthew, that's amazing. Wow. It was. And to see on the newspapers across the land, pictures splashed on the front pages of these couples who had spent their lives together, finally being able to consummate in a very public way for the world to see the special love that they shared. It was Mm. quite um, a beautiful sight to behold. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. But, you know, as as you know, these civil rights advancements take one step forward and two steps back. Because as you talked about in your story, that even though the California Supreme Court ruled for same-sex couples... California reverses that momentum, reverses that happiness with the Proposition 8 ballot measure declaring all same-sex marriages from that point forward to be unconstitutional. It did not render null and void the marriages that had occurred, but it just stopped Mm -hmm. any further marriages in California between same-sex couples from proceeding. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, Judge Walker would then have this very public trial about whether, uh, for instance, same-sex marriages were going to bring the downfall of civilization, whether same-sex marriage hurt children like the Yes on Prop 8 campaign maintained. And of course, these experts came in, one ended up recanting, the other one said, I'm sorry, I really don't have much substance to what I'm saying. There really is no expert opinion that will defend the Yes on Prop 8 arguments. So... We rest our case. And of course, we know the rest of that story as Prop 8 is overturned. But in 2013, and this is where the Defense of Marriage Act comes in, this is United States versus Windsor with the case of a woman named Edith Windsor. The Supreme Court, in another decision authored by Justice Kennedy, agreed with the lower courts that the ban on federal recognition of same-sex couples was unconstitutional. The federal government must recognize same-sex marriages from states with marriage equality. So in this case, this was New York. And what Edith Windsor was hoping at the Supreme Court to be decided is that she could take her marriage elsewhere in the United States. That she wasn't just gay married in New York. She could be Mm. gay married anywhere. So this essentially knocked out Section 3 of DOMA. Mm. But... Section 2 of DOMA, where the country defined marriages between one man and one woman, this was still on the books. So this is how we arrived to the Supreme Court in 2015 with Obergefell versus Hodges. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Ah, perfect. Such a great... Now we're here and like we have all of this context and all of this 
ability to understand what this meant, right? Legally, culturally, and um, what a great long introduction that was really, really needed to be that robust. So I'm so grateful. Oh boy, did I get the right person onto this podcast to give us the history, <laughs> Matthew. Oh, I it love it. It may have been lengthy, but I gave it to you in detail. <laughs> you did. It was fantastic. I love it. Okay. So now we've arrived. We've arrived at um, a Burgafell. So this is great. Keep going. Just keep teaching us about it. This is fantastic. Okay. Well, my husband is a lawyer. I am not a lawyer, but mm -hmm. as they say in the legal world, we have to look at the fact pattern yes. so that we can dive into the decision itself and mm -hmm. really appreciate what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's look at the fact pattern here. Shortly after the Windsor decision um, and a love that spanned two decades, a dude named Jim Obergfell and John Arthur married in Maryland in 2013. Hmm. Mr. Arthur was receiving hospice care, sadly, after re receiving a diagnosis of ALS or uh, Lou Gehrig's disease two years earlier. A few months after the newlyweds returned to Ohio from being married, Mr. Arthur died. Mm -hmm. Obergefell sued Ohio, alleging discrimination against his same-sex relationship by refusing to identify his name on the death certificate of his husband. Mm -hmm. The case continued all the way to the Supreme Court, a fight that ultimately resulted in all marriage bans nationwide being struck down on June 26, 2015. And I'll never forget this. I was actually in the Himalayan foothills. <laughs> I was putting together a international travels study uh, program for Menlo School students, and I received this decision. I was alone waiting for one of my colleagues to arrive as well, and I just sort mm. of celebrated. It was a jubilant occasion, even Aww. though the Indian folk around me were not quite understanding why I was so happy, <laughs> you know? And here I was doing cartwheels on the front Aww. lawn of old, an old colonial hotel and wow. a beautiful setting up there in, in Raniquet. But, um, this wow. knocked out Section 2 of the Defense of Marriage Act. That is what my husband, a lawyer, calls a fact pattern, okay? Mm -hmm. So now that we've mastered that, let's turn our attention to Justice Kennedy's decision here, okay? Okay. All right. So since the plaintiff's arguments rest so heavily on the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, I think it's a good idea that we familiarize ourselves with what the 14th Amendment says. So Amy, could you read that for us there. Yeah, sure. Quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, end quote. Thank you, Amy. So essentially, Justice Kennedy is agreeing with the plaintiff's defense. He is saying that indeed the right to marry for same-sex couples does hinge on whether the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment permit it. 
So he, in his decision, is agreeing with the application of the Equal Protection Clause in what he says. So um, quoting from the decision, the fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. Now, that's his opening salvo. And to my delight, Anthony Kennedy proceeds right into history in order to anchor this initial premise here, this culminating premise, but this initial premise that he takes. Uh, he, he took his decision right to the beginning with a sort of encomium of marriage. This is so beautiful. Amy, would you read this highfalutin language that he uses here? <laughs> I will do my best, yes. Quote, the centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers into relatives, binding families and societies together. Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government. This wisdom was echoed centuries later and half a world away by Cicero, who wrote, The first bond of society is marriage, next children, and then the family. There are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. The petitioners acknowledge this history, but contend that these cases cannot end there. Were their intent to demean the revered idea and reality of marriage, the petitioners' claims would be of a different order. But that is neither their purpose nor their submission. To the contrary, it is the enduring importance of marriage that underlies the petitioners' contentions. This, they say, is their whole point. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners seek it for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. And their immutable nature dictates that same-sex marriage is their only real path to this profound commitment. End quote. Wow. That's so powerful, reading it out loud. I hadn't read it out loud or heard it read out loud before, but wow, it gave me chills reading it. It really is this majestic rhetoric speaking to the best of what marriage can be in American yeah. society. Absolutely. That's yeah, lovely. Yeah. So next, Kennedy details the struggle of the LGBTQ community to fight discrimination. And it's all of the things that we've discussed earlier. He is bringing them into the conversation. He wants the world to see how the LGBTQ community fought back. He says that that's an important thing to keep in mind because look at the courage. They are possessed of a conviction that is so compelling to us that we must take note of it. So he says that's important to know. And then he also says that case law is important here. Uh, if you're familiar with stare decisis, this is a legal term that suggests that the current decision is made based on previous case mm -hmm. law, based on precedent. So, precedent, yeah. Yep. 
Kennedy is saying that the case law also justifies the legitimacy of LGBTQ people to advocate for marriage rights. So he goes through that history that we just looked at. Then Kennedy maintained that the courts must intervene when there is some equivocation between the promises of the due process and equal protection clauses and these claims of discrimination. So he says, and I quote, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights in the Fourth Amendment, 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions. And so they entrusted a future generation, a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. And what I find so interesting here is you have Justice Antonin Scalia who says that the Constitution must be interpreted quite literally, historically, linguistically. We need to understand that the Constitution says what it means and it's limited by what it says, what it means. And then you have liberal-minded justices on the other end who maintain, no, the Constitution is a living, breathing document. And I don't find Anthony Kennedy to be in that liberal camp where the Constitution has a life of its own, right? (laughs) But look what he's doing here. He's actually saying, I subscribe to a school of hermeneutics, philosophy of interpretation, which is between the originalist position and the living, breathing sort of read a response tradition here. He's saying (laughs) the constitution can be applied to new circumstances and we should pay heed to how the constitution can be applied to new issues, new problems, new injustices, new discriminations that arise. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Kennedy proceeded to lay out the planks of his decision in favor of the plaintiffs. So let's look at the first plank here. He cites Loving versus Virginia of 1967, the court case that decreed all state anti-miscegenation laws unconstitutional. Kennedy asserted that the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. In other words, what Kennedy is saying here is that marriage is the gateway to other important life choices, expressions of identity, intimacy, and spirituality that shapes one's identity. He's saying such important life decisions should not be infringed on by the state, right? This is libertarian Mm. argument. Don't tread on me. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And in that way, he's sort of appealing to conservatives here. He's saying you should be on board with this because this actually um, celebrates individual autonomy, personal responsibility, uh, things that conservatives do champion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's his first plank. His second plank is that marriage is a fundamental right and we have to see it as a fundamental right. If it is a fundamental right for straight couples as stare decisis, previous case laws established, then it has to be for same-sex couples as well. So that's the second plank. The third plank follows from this, where Justice Kennedy says that marriage, quote, safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from related rights to childbearing, protection, and education. 
See, same-sex couples have children too. So the logic here is that because so many of these same-sex couples have children and these families deserve the rights, protections, and privileges that marriage affords, why would the court not allow the children to enjoy the protections, privileges, rights, responsibilities that come along with marriage? They too should enjoy those as well. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the fourth plank here is that marriage is the fundamental organizing principle of society. Now, I would say we might want to question whether that's true, whether it has to be true, but this is what Kennedy and is saying. And we will, right? And we will next time. <laughs> yeah, Boy, we're will go we. There. We're the vengeance. Boy, will we. Yep, yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. It says marriage is that fundamental organizing principle of society, and the state really has a vested interest in encouraging it through what he says, quote, is a symbolic recognition and material benefit to protect and nourish marital unions. He enumerated what this state involved, um, you know, slate of uh, benefits entails. He says it's taxation. It's about inheritance and property rights. It's about the rules of interstate succession, spousal privilege in the law of evidence, hospital rights, hospital visitation rights, medical decision-making authority, he says, adoption rights, the rights and benefits of survivors, birth and death certificates, professional ethics rules, campaign finance restrictions, workers' comp benefits, health insurance, child custody, support and visitation rules, on and on and on, he says, marriage is a vehicle to give this to people. So how could we prevent a whole class of people from having access to all of these things? We can't. Kennedy concludes, this would be an injustice. Amy, do you want to read how he concludes the decision here? Yes. Quote, by virtue of their exclusion from that institution, same-sex couples are denied the constellation of benefits that the states have linked to marriage. This harm results in more than just material burdens. Same-sex couples are consigned to an instability many opposite-sex couples would deem intolerable in their own lives. As the state itself makes marriage all the more precious by the significance it attaches to it, exclusion from that status has the effect of teaching that gays and lesbians are unequal in important respects. It demeans gays and lesbians for the state to lock them out of a central institution of the nation's society. Same-sex couples, too, may aspire to the transcendent purposes of marriage and seek fulfillment in its highest meaning. The limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples may long have seemed natural and just, but its inconsistency with the central meaning of the fundamental right to marry is now manifest. With that knowledge must come the recognition that laws excluding same-sex couples from the marriage right impose stigma and injury of the kind prohibited by our basic charter, end quote. Thank you. And he continued later in the decision, the imposition of this disability of gays and lesbians serves to disrespect and subordinate them. And the Equal Protection Clause, like the Due Process Clause, prohibits this unjustified infringement of the fundamental right to marry. These considerations lead to the conclusion that the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person, and under the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment, couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. 
the court now holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. The court in this decision holds same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry in all states. And there it is. As is is true. So consistent with Kennedy, he's brought all of these decisions along as if sort of a nursemaid giving rise to LGBTQ rights, particularly of marriage equality rights. So he's bringing it along. And this is the apotheosis of all of his work for Mm -hmm. a couple of decades. And he's Mm -hmm. conscious about what history is going to think of him. Mm -hmm. And this, I believe, is why the Obergefell decision is so poetically written. Mm. Yeah, he knew he was changing the world. He knew people like us would be reading this and will be forever after in in history classes. It's one of the defining documents in history now. It's amazing. I'm so glad that you chose this to read in your podcast, Breaking Down Patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, if I if I may just uh, kind of drop a couple of insights here yeah, from please, the decision. Mm-hmm. So let's be careful. Anthony Kennedy treated Obergefell as a marriage opinion, not a civil rights opinion. Mm. And that's important to remember. This makes it difficult to translate this victory to other queer struggles for sexual minorities like transgender rights. This really is a decision that is so tightly argued. It's circumscribing LGBTQ rights to marriage rights. He is not saying that this is transferable to other rights. Other rights in society can be, can be negotiated. And I'm talking about the kind of rights that would prevent you from being fired from your employer or being evicted from your apartment. Mm-hmm. He's saying something very, very particular about marriage and about opening up marriage for same-sex couples. This is not a blanket statement about LGBTQ rights. So that's important to remember. And also the culture wars have moved on from Mm same-sex marriage to transgender persons' rights today. And I just wonder for all of those organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, to what extent will LGBTQ rights organizations be effective at advocating for rights advancements for genderqueer individuals? Mm-hmm. I think that that really remains to be seen. So we just, we mm-hmm. cannot tell from this decision. Okay. Yeah, such a good point. And we will talk a little bit more. I mean, we'll talk actually extensively about what comes afterwards, but I want to wait just a second because I, one thing that we talked about before that I wanted to get to is pointing out that again, like within a span of a decade and, and what we talked about in our last episode, that the whole episode and how that, that felt in California during prop eight and marriage equality, like this issue went from being the major front in the culture wars bitterly contested, really definitely within my community, where there was a lot of tension and argument and a lot of anguish and heartbreak. Now it's completely different. It went from that to like (laughs) wholesale societal support. Um, You pointed out the statistic to me that a new Gallup poll revealed that support for marriage equality is now at 70%. Right. And, and for mm-hmm. the first time ever, even a majority staggering. of Republicans, it is staggering. It, I mean, I, 
again, like, you know how personal this is to me and how, like, what a an ordeal that was. Um, and so to witness that huge change, and I've really seen it, I mean, from me to my children, I even talked about that last time too, where I had undergone this whole like dark night of the soul about it. Literally, I mean, mm. a, a huge crisis, really a crisis of faith and, and philosophy and intellectual crisis. And it was, I mean, my own daughter, just me to my daughter, and I had kids young, so it's like a pretty <laughs> tight <laughs> um, generation, right? To have her crying with relief and joy when Obergefell v. Hodge is when the, when the Supreme Court made this decision, she was crying with relief and joy. And I was kind of like, whoa, how did you get here? What and a even seismic some of, shift. Huge, huge, just from me to my kids. And I'm seeing that too, even within my very orthodox, very devout Mormon friends, families, their kids who are teenagers now would be appalled. Sorry to say they would, mm. they would be appalled if they heard some of the things that their parents were saying mm. about this not very long ago. And some of those parents too have in their own way made a lot of progress. You know, maybe it looks different from where I've landed with it. And so those parents too are making the changes, but I guess that's my long way of asking you how in the world did this happen in such a short amount of time? No. And, and that is an important historical question. 70% of Americans now support marriage equality for the first time in the history of that Gallup polling. And even a majority of the Republicans are in favor. How, how do we get here? So how? according, yeah, it, it's, it's really a, a wonderful question. I can't claim to know for certain about this, but according to my study, I can attribute this lightning quick acceptance of marriage equality at least to a few things. And I hope this is compelling to those listening here. The first, and I, this is really crucial to, to understand, there's a political science theory, and I want to avoid jargon, but political science uses a term called contact theory that... Mm -hmm pervasive familiarity and exposure to people who are LGBTQ humanizes queer people in the eyes of the straight world. When Harvey Milk in the 1970s was pressing the LGBTQ community to come out, mm -hmm. pick up the phone, call your parents, tell them you're lesbian, tell them you're bisexual, he was onto something before anybody else was. He knew about contact theory before the political scientists knew about contact theory. That queer people ceased to be an issue, but now people you know and you love, they are your teachers, your doctors, your lawyers, your cafeteria workers. They are your Uber drivers. They are your state senators. They are potentially even your president of your country. Queers are everywhere. They are integrated in every part of society, every structure, every institution, every system of society. Because queers are equally distributed throughout a population, this accelerates contact within families and communities to make it more difficult to objectify or dehumanize us. Come out, come out wherever you are. <laughs> it it naturally crosses partisan lines. Queer people are equally born into liberal and conservative communities. Racial, ethnic, and religious identity tends to be more separated into homogenous 
enclaves within American society. But LGBTQ people, we just pop up everywhere. <laughs> we can't be avoided, right? So I think mm-hmm. contact theory, just elbow to elbow experience with people has yeah, has definitely contributed to this. Yeah, uh, well, and as you're saying that, um, I mean, I'm, again, I'm just remembering what I talked about with in our last episode too, that was huge for my husband, huge when he got to Stanford and and suddenly found himself with friends that he really liked and respected. And then they said, guess what? I'm the person you know, and part of my identity is I'm gay. That was that was the game changer for him. He had just been so siloed and so, you know, protected Absolutely. from it. And and so they weren't re- like they they were other. They were they were not real to him. And once they became real, it was, I mean, everything changed. So I've seen Absolutely. that too in our life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and you spoke to this. I don't want to gild the lily on this point, but there really has been a seismic generational shift here where yeah. millennials and Gen Z just view marriage equality as a non-issue. I mean, it really yeah. is just settled. They cannot comprehend why someone would be opposed to marriage equality or in the interest of fairness, LGBTQ rights in general. So if you just want to think about it in terms of generational shift, for every old person who dies, chances are you have a marriage equality opponent or an LGBTQ rights opponent passing away. Not all (laughs) Mm -hmm. elderly folk, of course, we're not all people who die, but you know, there tends to be a definite uh, trend among older people who are more jaundiced when Mm -hmm. they look at LGBTQ equality. Now for, yeah, for millennials and Gen Z, they're like, I don't understand what the big deal is. Like, why are we even talking about this? For every person born, 80% of a new person born actually are are going to be an advocate for marriage equality and LGBTQ rights, according to the experts, Mm -hmm. right? So it is just generational shift and, and marriage equality as a hot button issue or LGBTQ rights also, as, as a hot button issue, is just really an easy concept to accept. It, it just doesn't have the complexities that the issues of abortion, gun rights, and mm-hmm. marginal tax rates have, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Where you don't really know why you believe what you believe. The arguments uh, can sometimes be convoluted. So consequently, people's minds are just easier to change on these issues. And and politicians like Bill and Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden, they've all, quote, evolved with society on this issue. They haven't led on it. They've kind of evolved mm-hmm. with society on this issue. So I just think in general, it's an easier concept, marriage equality or equal rights, uh, to work through personally uh, than some of these other more contentious political footballs that get bandied about in public discourse. Mm -hmm. And then finally, with these last two reasons I have, I think about the weaknesses of the objections of uh, opponents of marriage equality in the media and the courts. They had an opportunity to be heard and their reasons came up wanting. Now, of course, they had status quo bias working in their favor, favor initially, but as this sort of parade of horribles that they articulated, it's the end of Western civilization. Oh my God, the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never came to pass. 
right? Yeah. I mean, any any arguments to prevent same-sex couples from marrying really lost any purchase with the American people. And with that then just came the natural momentum of marriage equality. Once marriage equality became legal, it was just so easy to sustain. It's It's got like a self-justifying kind of quality to it. It's just really easy to execute. We already have marriages going on in society. We're just going to open it up to more people. And that stands in such stark contrast, if you will, to other important Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, which sought to desegregate schools. And really, over 50 years later, schools are just as segregated as they were when the Brown v. Board decision was decided. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Those are my reasons. Okay, so then back to what uh, to where we were going to go before the that little uh detour. So the next point was where do we go from here, right? Where is this ongoing battle in the culture war? Where does it proceed from Obergefell? What's next? Or what happened next, I guess? Right, because that decision was in 2015, so we're right. having this conversation in 2021. 6 years has transpired and there has you know, been some developments, but also we want to think about where we're going with all of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first development is the proliferation of RFRA laws, the Religious Freedom of Restoration Act, which was a federal law passed in 1993. State laws want to create a mini RFRA for their own states. That's what's happening um, that what is what has happened is what is continuing to happen. Um, and so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 93 prohibited any agency, this is quoting from the law itself, department or official of the United States or any state, the government, from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, except that the government may burden a person's exercise of religion only if it demonstrates that application of the burden to the person, one, furthers a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. Now, I don't have time here to get in to the ways in which one group, women or peoples with disabilities, become a discrete, insular, protected class, which would then wall them off from state interests, governmental interests in discriminating against them. But suffice it to say, LGBTQ people do not presently enjoy those protections. We are not part of those discrete insular classes of people who are deserving of the highest protections. So Hmm. right now, the question is, to what extent may people use their religious freedom in order to discriminate against LGBTQ people in places of business or Mm -hmm. in the public square. Not selling the wedding cake for the gay wedding or something. That's the kind of the the classic one that you hear, right? That's right. The the right of the baker, of the wedding cake baker to not provide the cake for the gay wedding. That that tension between uh, values and I guess, right? Yes, Right. I mean, it could be that as it pertains to marriages, you've got the wedding photographer, you've got the florist. If they are these evangelical Christians who are opposed to marriage equality, they're Mormon and opposed to marriage equality. They may say, well, it's against my religion for me to participate 
in your union in this way by providing you a cake or taking photographs right. and providing you flowers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. But the question really is, it could be anything. Like, let's just say that I teach swimming and a same-sex mm-hmm. couple comes to me and says, could you teach my son or daughter or other kind of child to swim? And I say, well, it's against my religion to teach the children of same-sex couples how to swim. My, my religious freedom could potentially extend in those situations. Okay. The court really hasn't decided in all of those situations. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, now, a real victory, and this might be a victory that both assimilationists and liberationists can celebrate together, is the Bostock versus Clayton County decision that occurred on June 15th, 2020, when the court ruled in a six to three decision that covered three cases that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is necessarily also discrimination, quote, because of sex as prohibited by Title VII. Now, what's so queer, if you will, (laughs) to use a traditional definition of queer, what is (laughs) queer about this is that Justice Neil Gorsuch's majority opinion here, this is Neil Gorsuch writing the opinion, that he is not basing his opinion on constitutional arguments or stare decisis on precedent. He's doing so based on statutory language. He says that this is so because employers discriminating against gay or transgender employees accept a certain conduct, right? Attraction to women in employees of one sex, but not employees of the other sex. It's very clever what Gorsuch is doing here. And and as I was talking to a friend of mine who's an attorney for Facebook, he says, I don't care how Gorsuch got there. <laughs> it's just that he got there that mm-hmm. I'm happy about. Mm-hmm. You know, That's surprising. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. And Gorsuch is making this textualist argument. It's not as sure as a constitutional argument would be that is bedrock embedded into case law. But hey, I don't know how Gorsuch got here, but at least he got here. So yeah. Gorsuch was careful here to dis- to circumscribe the decision to the employment context and not extend it to other areas like housing discrimination or discrimination in bathrooms and locker rooms and, and things of, of that nature, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, Bostock versus Clayton County this applies really to a broader cross-section of queer people. This is a landmark decision that will be understood on par with Obergefell. This is really key. Now, where do we go from here? That was your original question. I think that we, we need to understand we're, we're really not there yet. And, and this is why the Equality Act must past Congress. Unfortunately, the judicial and legislative gains made in the last couple of decades are just not enough to protect Mm. LGBTQ people and their families. State non-discrimination laws, unfortunately, are just patchwork in their nature. They just lack a permanence that federal legislation would ensure. So our nation's civil rights laws cover individual citizens on the basis of race, color, Uh, national origin, and even, you know, in most cases, sex, disability, and religion. However, 
These do not protect them on the basis, they do not protect me, my community, mm-hmm. on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So mm-hmm. um, I'll quote the Human Rights Campaign, which has sponsored this legislation that, quote, the Equality Act would provide consistent and explicit non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people across key areas of life, including employment, housing, credit, education, public spaces and services, federally funded programs, and jury service. The Equality Act would amend existing civil rights law, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Jury Selection and Services Act, and several laws regarding employment with the federal government to explicitly include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected characteristics. The legislation also amends the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to prohibit discrimination in public places and services and federally funded programs on the basis of sex. I mean, the sort of the Justice Ginsburg rings in my ears on the basis mm-hmm. of sex here, right, right here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is what we really need to secure. And as so much legislation, it goes to the Senate to die. That unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's a 50-50 split Senate at the moment. So the Equality Act does not look like it has the votes to pass at this present time. Is there anything that just you know, everyday voters can do to influence that act passing in Congress? Is there anything we can do that we could tell listeners how to get involved? Absolutely. Just wait outside the door with our fingers crossed. (laughs) You've got to aggressively advocate for the Equality Act with your representatives, your members of the House, your senators. You need to tell them why this patchwork of state non-discrimination law and judicial decisions are just not going to cut it. Why the Equality Act is necessary, especially if you live in a Republican state or even places like West Virginia or Arizona, where the senators kind of seem on the fence about things. You got to aggressively advocate for the Equality Act. Okay. That it, it reminds me of our, I mean, we did an episode on the Equal Rights Amendment also, and it, it has a lot in common with the Equality Act, I think, in terms of like, there's just been patchwork protections. It's not enough. There's too many holes in it. There, there needs to be something more comprehensive. And so let's add that. Listeners, let's add that to our list of things to write <laughs> to our senators about. I mean, it's really, really important. So I'm glad you highlighted that, Matthew. Of course. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'm just like overwhelmed with, I mean, the amount of information that you just imparted to to all of us. (laughs) And so, so grateful. That was such a fantastic history lesson and just super grateful. So as we wrap up, do you have like a big takeaway or two from today, Matthew? Yeah, I've, I've got two. I find them the historical curiosities that, you know, I I would naturally gravitate toward. Um, So my Mm -hmm. first one is that conservatives ironically have been pivotal in directing the queer liberation movement after the HIV AIDS crisis, perhaps Hmm. even limiting critical examination of heteronormative patriarchy in American institutions, including marriage. And I personally believe that LGBTQ people will breathe new life into marriage 
and we'll transform it in ways that correct for the institution's, um, you know, patriarchal limitations. When we get to the next episode, our, our first queer theorist is going to make this explicitly clear. He is mm-hmm. not so expectant that LGBTQ people will do this to marriage. But, you know, he's hopeful. He's holding out the possibility. So mm-hmm. we just have to appreciate the fact that social conservatives have really directed and conducted queer liberation in many ways. Hmm. Now, the question really remains, like, what will the queer liberation movement do when it sets its own agenda moving forward? Mm-hmm. The second takeaway I have is that the right to marry crystallizes 25 years of civil rights struggle for LGBTQ people, advanced primarily through the judiciary, which, yes, thank you, Anthony Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. But it is unclear, even after the Bostock decision, whether this victory will lead to a more progressive advancement of LGBTQ rights, particularly for transgender persons. So it really remains to be seen whether we will be able to translate this momentum and um, an energy in the direction of other queer outlaws that are loosely strung together in the acronym Mm -hmm. LGBTQ. Fantastic. Well, I, as I'm thinking about, if I were to say a takeaway or two, I mean, there's so many, I would, I guess I'll share two as well. One is just the power of the text. I, you, you said you were grateful and glad that I chose this for the, for the podcast. And, and I really am too, I, reading the, the decision and all of the thought and care that went into it. And like you pointed out, just the beauty of the language and the sophistication. And again, just the human care that went into making that decision and then crafting the explanation of it It was really powerful to read that. So for Mm. listeners, if you haven't read this uh, Supreme Court case yet, I really recommend that you do. It was so interesting to i mean we we hear about it it was the same when we did roe v wade right everybody knows what roe v wade is but i'd never read the case and it was a profound experience to actually read the case so i really recommend doing that that's my first takeaway for listeners read it um and then the second thing is just that part where where you said if feminists care about eradicating patriarchy then we need to think intersectionally and dismantle heteronormativity as ardently as we do gender inequality. And and then you you also said to to any LGBTQ people listening that queers need to be feminists. And just the clarity of the way you articulated that really helped me again. And I mentioned it before, but just I really understood the interlocking systems better through having this conversation. And it really strengthened it to be a better ally. And by, you know, this, this process of educating myself, I'm, I'm becoming a more informed ally, which does make me a better ally, I, I hope. So that would, those would be my two takeaways. So again, thank you, Matthew. You are just the best, incredible <laughs> teacher, such a dear friend and wonderful human being. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. It's just been such a great experience. Yeah. Thank you, Amy, for being such a wonderful conversation partner, informed, so emotionally embodied. And it's Mm -hmm. just fun having this conversation with you. So thank you as well. 
let me say a little bit about the final two episodes of this series. Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love to have you introduce those, Matthew. Tell us what we're reading, what we're reading and discussing next. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're going to rush headlong into some really fascinating queer theory for the fir- third and fourth episodes. Michael Warner and Lee Edelman are professors at August universities here in the United States, mm-hmm. and Jose Esteban Munoz, who also was a university professor but has since passed away. These are queer liberationists fighting what they generally see as the conservative takeover of LGBTQ politics, aesthetics, ethics, and our society in general. So we're going to just dive into some queer theory and listen to the more liberationist side of the conversation that that we're having um, as we've been spending a whole lot of time in more of the assimilationist domain. Mm-hmm. Yes, perfect. And, the, and, and we just really have established kind of, you know, the vocabulary that we'll need to make sense of that landscape. As you know, Matthew, I, <laughs> I read the, um, the more difficult books of the queer theory <laughs> first. And I was, <laughs> I was emailing Matthew and being like, I don't get it. <laughs> like it's really hard. Like not only I have to say, so I always tell our listeners what books to read or articles to read if they want to for the next episode. If you want to, if you want to go here, it's amazingly mind expanding. Um, so I would get Michael Warner's book, The Trouble with Normal, and then Lee Edelman's book, No Future. Oh, I think the whole title is No Future Queer Theory and the Death Drive, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Esteban Munoz wrote uh, Cruising Utopia. And so those are the three books that we'll be discussing in the final episode. Just know they're, I mean, if you're a listener like me with my background, it will be uncomfortable, like philosophically, perhaps at times, uncomfortable in terms of content. There's some like really adult content in in there sometimes too. Um, And then Matthew, you really helped save my ego when I <laughs> by saying like some of the stuff, especially the Edelman, even the Munoz sometimes too, it's very it, it's hard to understand. They're like um, in a world that they've they've spent decades and decades with this stuff, and so I'm so glad I dove in and read it. It's the first queer theory I've ever read. I'm just going to tell listeners it's going to be challenging. So if you're in, if you're up for a challenge, read all of these books. And then still being up for a challenge, but just the TLDR, you can listen to our discussion <laughs> next week and we'll give you great bullet points and insights on the next two episodes of Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs>